0: As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. Today, Luke chapter 23. If you grew up in the 80s like me, anybody else grow up in the 80s? Well, you guys are Gen Xers, and we're kind of the forgotten generation. You know, you have the baby boomers and the millennials, and everybody talks about those generations, but Gen Xers, we're kind of the X, you know, people just kind of ignore us. Maybe it's because our inventions only lasted about five years. And everything we invented, something better came out about five years later. You know, one of our great inventions, though, was the dot matrix printer. Anybody remember the dot matrix printer? That's right. You know, Before that, everything was typewriters and, and whiteout on the typewriter. And then <coughs> that dot matrix printer came along and you'd tear off the thing and, and you'd turn in your paper and you could actually correct it without having to use whiteout. It was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And if you remember, it printed everything with little dots. So if you looked closely, all your letters were actually just a bunch of little dots. In fact, our video games were just a bunch of dots. <laughs> you, guys, you guys remember those little Mattel football games? I used to play it on the bus on the way to school all the time. You know, you had three dots, and you go up, down, up, down, up. Oh, there's a gap. And then you'd take the dot and go across the, the screen and over and over again until you finally scored a touchdown. Or we had Pac-Man, which was this little monster eating a bunch of dots, right? That's what we were, that's what we were known for. And then HDTV came out. And suddenly they started talking about how they can bring all the dots together and all these pixels and the resolution would get so good. And and then Apple came out with uh, the the retina display and then it was the super retina display and then the liquid retina display. And, and, And the principle, though, is still the same. You have these little dots or these pixels, but whenever you bring them together whenever you pack them together densely enough they begin to make a picture and i think god often works this way he takes these little individual events of our lives that from our perspective often feel very disconnected we we see the boundaries we see the different pixels, we see the different dots, but then God brings them together and he begins to paint our story. And what we begin to discover as we follow Christ is that the story that God is painting is actually his story. I used to think that life was like a roller coaster. You know, you'd have your up moments and then you'd have your down moments, and sometimes you'd be going back and forth, but you were on one track, and you were going down the, the road, and it was, it was somewhat like a roller coaster, but I've begun to conclude that life is more like, more like uh, uh, the Spider-Man action ride. You're in the car, and sometimes you're going up, and sometimes you're going down, and the bad guys and the good guys and all the events are, are going on all around you. And and what I've begun to discover through reading Scripture and also just through living life is that life's not just a happily ever after and, oh, now it's sad, and, oh, it's good, and now it's bad. But really, you have these congruent tracks that are running all the time. There's struggle, there's challenge, and at the same time, There's blessing. There's people that may be hurting you or doing things that they shouldn't, and there's also people that are blessing you. There's always opportunities to be a part of what God is doing. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that no matter where you are in life, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're going through a hard time right now, or whether life just seems like it's in autopilot right now and everything's easy. No matter where you are in life, I want you to know this, okay? Make sure you catch this. God is at work. God is at work in your life, and God is at work through your life. And whenever you begin to see life through the lens of the Holy Spirit, I promise you this, you will see opportunities for you to be a part of the story that He is bringing together. And God, in his sovereign love and strength, can display a beautiful picture through the life that he has blessed you with. This is a basic principle as to how God works. God brings opportunities and people into our lives. And often, these people, these opportunities come into our lives when we least expect them. Anybody in the room ever had God bring some person or some opportunity into your life when you least expected it? And then God begins to bring it all together, and you didn't see it coming. You just thought this was an event or this was an event, but then you begin to see the sovereign fingers at work, and suddenly you begin to see this display of God's story for your life and this magnificent display of God's love to you. So here's my assignment today. I want to show you how in what was seemingly the darkest moment of Jesus' life that God was still at work in the people around him. There are three men in particular that God weaves into the story of the cross. Their names are Barabbas, Simon of Cyrene, and the thief on the cross. We don't know his name. The Bible just calls him the the thief. And I call these stories of these three men the scarlet threads, those stories that God just wove into the story of the cross. At midnight, Jesus and the disciples arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, Jesus went into the garden and he prayed to the Lord beneath the olive branches and he poured out his heart to God. Shortly thereafter, Judas and his band of temple guards arrived at the garden. Jesus was arrested. He was taken to a man's house by the name of Annas, who had been the high priest, yet he still wielded, uh, wielded most of the influence within the Jewish community, and he was questioned by Annas. From two o'clock to five in the morning, Jesus stood before the highest court in Judaism, the Sanhedrin court, and they condemned Jesus of blasphemy. It's what we call the religious trial. It was actually a sham of a trial in every way. He was likely held in a pit beneath the temple for a couple of hours. And then at sunrise, he was formally charged with the crime of blasphemy. But the Jewish court could not carry out an execution. So they took him about a half a mile to the Roman fort known as Antonia, where the governor of Judea, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate, was presiding. And there Jesus stood before Pilate. Around eight in the morning, Jesus was sentenced to death by crucifixion. Now you remember from the sermon last week that Pontius Pilate worked really hard to do everything he could to avoid making a decision against Jesus. He initially said, I don't want anything to do with this. Then he said, why don't you send Jesus over to Herod and let Herod judge him because I don't want to make the decision. Then Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, so then Pilate begins working compromises. His first compromise is, I'll whip Jesus, and then I'll set him free. The crowd won't go for that. So then Pilate tries a second compromise. There was this custom. And the custom of the day was that that uh, that the, the Hebrew people, or the Romans, would release one prisoner to the people at the Passover feast. And so Pilate thinks of this guy who's in prison, who everybody knows has committed murder and has done wrong. His name is Barabbas, and he'll bring Barabbas out, and maybe the crowd will ask for Jesus' freedom, and then Pilate can once again get out of the decision. And so here's this man, Barabbas, who is brought out, and he finds himself standing on the stage of eternity right next to Jesus. Barabbas, the word bar means son, the word Abbas means father. Some scholars have speculated that Barabbas may have been a son of a priestly family. He was a PK, a pastor's kid. Anybody else in the in the house a pastor's kid? I'm a pastor's kid. Do we have any pastor's kid? Got one back here. There was three or four in the in the service earlier. You know, pastor's kids get a bad rap. People are always talking about how wild and crazy pastor's kids are. Yeah, see, you've heard it before. It's only because they hang out with the deacon's kids that that's why the pastor's kids do that. And and then, you, you know, you throw in a, an MK, a missionary's kid along the way, and, you know, those guys are just glad to see the sunlight, and so uh, then everything really gets crazy at that point. But, uh, you know, Barabbas, he, he grew up in a home that likely taught him about the Lord, but then somewhere along the way, he made a, a wrong turn, and he, he became an angry young man. And, you know, often whenever we get angry, it's because we're seeing our challenges as enemies rather than opportunities. Whenever we get angry, all the events in our life become very black and white. In fact, the people in our life become, uh, as far as their behavior, it becomes black and white. And we start seeing things, this is a good moment, this is a bad moment, this is my friend, this is my enemy, here I am, here you are. And somewhere along the way, Barabbas became an angry person, he became an enemy of Rome, and he found himself participating in an insurrection and committing murder. He was evidently guilty. He was evidently thrown into prison and condemned to die. And can you imagine how he must have slept the night before? Not knowing if when the sun came up, if this would be his last sunrise. Not knowing if that morning would be the time where the soldier comes to him and takes him and leads him out to be scourged and then crucified. And then suddenly, Barabbas jumps into the story of Jesus. Look with me in verse 18 of chapter 23. Then they all cried out together, take this man away and release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. So Pilate stands up and he gives some type of speech urging them not to condemn Barabbas, but not to condemn Jesus, but to condemn Barabbas. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. And verse 23, one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture, and their voices won out. Now we don't know what happened to Barabbas. We do know this. He began the day a condemned man, and he ended the day a free man. We know that he was guilty, and Jesus was innocent. We know that he deserved punishment, and Jesus did not. We know that Jesus was crucified, and Barabbas was set free. And so, Barabbas becomes a scarlet thread in the story of the cross, And in a very real way, if you think about it, he represents each and every one of us because we've all done things against God that are wrong. We've all committed sin, and because of that sin, we all stand separated from God, and we all have an appointment with eternal death. And then God does something that we could never do. He intervenes into our scene, and Jesus takes our place so that we might find freedom in Christ. And so Barabbas is woven into the story, and he becomes a picture of everybody in the room. From outside the city walls, there were two boys, Alexander and Rufus, and they could hear over the walls of Antonia the shout of the crowd. They could hear what seemed like a mob yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. And eventually word began to spread around the town as people were eating breakfast that Jesus had been condemned to die. And so these two boys go to their father Simon and they tell him that Jesus had just been sentenced to die. Now it was practiced within Roman tradition that when someone was sentenced to die by crucifixion that they would then be paraded through the street, usually with their crime hung around their neck so that everybody could see this is what happens to you whenever you mess with Rome. And so it was about 8.30 in the morning when the execution party made its way past Simon. And that's when Jesus, already weakened by the beatings of the evening, already weakened by the scourging that he had endured, that's when he begins to fall beneath the load of the cross. And in verse 26, here's what the Bible says. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming in from the country... And they laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. Now, no doubt, Simon had likely journeyed to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. This was the biggest weekend of the year. And so Simon had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and now he was face to face with the Passover lamb. The very sacrifices he was bringing, he was now seeing the personification of those sacrifices right before him in Jesus. Simon Peter had boasted earlier in the night that he was willing to die for Jesus, but as Jesus fell beneath the load of the cross, it was Simon of Cyrene who picked up his cross and carried it. The Bible doesn't tell us if Jesus and Simon exchanged any words in that difficult moment. But like Barabbas, Simon jumps into the story of Jesus, and he represents every one of us in the room again, because every one of us in the room are in need of Jesus. We are in need of a Savior. Simon, though, he, he wasn't a murderer like Barabbas. It appears that Simon was a good guy. I think he was doing his very best. He was raising his kids, he was practicing his faith, he was coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he was doing the right thing. If Simon were alive today, what do you think he would be like? I think Simon would be the guy who volunteers to coach the little league baseball team. I think Simon would probably drive an F-150. He's the kind of guy that paid his bills on time, had a little belly from eating too many M&M's during family movie night. <laughs> you know, Simon was just a good guy. Aren't the peanut ones delicious? I just love those peanut M&M's. Simon was just a good guy. But like Barabbas, he was in need of a Savior. Now, what's interesting is we do not know what happened to Simon, but the Bible does mention his sons. In Mark 15, 21, the Bible specifically identifies Simon as the father of two men, Alexander and Rufus. Now, it's speculated by scholars that the reason why they identify Simon's sons is because the early church knew who they were. If I go up to my daughter's school, where Karis and McKenna go to school, when I arrive on campus, I'm not Lash Banks. When I arrive on campus, I'm Karis and McKenna's dad, because everybody knows them. They just know me as their father. And so it appears that Alexander and Rufus, Simon's sons, became leaders in the early church. In Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is going down this long list of people that he's thanking for their ministry, and he mentions this guy, Rufus, as a choice servant of the Lord. Now, it was 2,000 years ago, and sometimes it's difficult to go back into literature and go back into history and know for certain, but it appears that in this brief moment when Simon's life intersected with Jesus, something eternal happened. And God began to weave a scarlet thread into their life. And Alexander and Rufus and their mother and perhaps Simon himself became followers of Jesus Christ. Now make sure you understand this. Make sure that you get this. When you go through suffering, When life gets rough, when life hurts, people are watching. Over and over again in the New Testament, it talks about a faith that has been proven. A faith that has gone through the refiner's fire. And when you go through those difficult moments, people are watching to see, are you the real deal? Is the faith that you profess authentic, Is it genuine? And I also want you to know this, that when you go through that difficult moment, God is still working. Even if it feels like the windows of heaven have been shut, even if it feels as though you cannot hear from the Holy Spirit, like you're all alone, I want you to know you're not all alone. God is still at work. And I promise you, That in his loving sovereignty, he is bringing opportunities into your life, and he is bringing those individual events together like dots into a masterpiece into the picture of your story. Now, let's also keep in mind, and this is hard in our narcissistic current culture, but let's keep in mind that when it comes to our lives, we're really not the stars of the show. God's the star of the show, and our lives ultimately exist to bring glory to Him. And so when He paints the picture of your life, He is ultimately painting a picture of His glory. And that takes you through hard moments, and it takes you through happy moments as well. It was 9 a.m. when the eerie echo of the hammers began to ring out. Many sermons have been preached on the agony of the cross. I think the gospel writers actually got it best when they simply wrote they crucified Him. You see, how Christ died is not nearly as important as why He died. Christ did not just die as an example for you or me. He did not just die as a martyr who truly believed in His teaching. But Christ died as an atonement for our sins. The Bible says in verse 32, that two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. So about six feet on either side of Jesus were two criminals. These two men had likely been born under Roman law. As children, their parents probably held them in their arms, and they had dreams for their boys. Whenever their boys began to walk and their boys began to mature, the dads probably thought, man, that that kid, he's going to amount to something. But then they began having these run-ins with Rome, and it probably started out innocently enough. They just wanted to make the soldiers' lives more difficult. They never imagined that it would go this far to the point that they were arrested and now they had been charged with a crime and they had been sentenced to die Rome looked at them as completely unworthy not even worthy of slavery Rome decided they can't even work in the mines they can't even work in the gallows that uh, power our ships no the only good these men have to offer is to be made an example of and so Jesus died between two thieves in a sea of anger The soldiers treated him like a caged animal, offering him vinegar to drink, mocking him, gambling for his garments. The religious leaders, the very people that were supposed to be leading people to God, instead were taunting the Son of God. Matthew and Mark both say, and take note of this, they both say in the same way the criminals, plural, were taunting Jesus. And through the darkness, through the agony, piercing the darkness comes grace. And Jesus cries out in the middle of His suffering, He cries out, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Father, pour out Your wrath on Me, not them. Their anger has blinded them. Drain their hearts of rage and fill them with My grace. The Bible begins to teach that that the Holy Spirit began doing a work in some of the people around Jesus, that the centurion began to realize that there was something more to this man, that even one of the thieves began to have the Holy Spirit work in his heart. But the other thief, the Bible says in verse 39, began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's hanging six feet away from God and all the anger, all the frustration all the disappointment of this man's life began to pour out. You dig down into the language and he was blaspheming Jesus. He was saying things about Jesus that were so reprehensible, so vile, so dripping with anger that the Bible can only translate it as he yelled insults at him. This criminal was minutes from death. His life had been deemed worthless. His body would be destroyed. By the end of the weekend, all evidence that he had ever lived would be gone. But instead of embracing grace, he chose to take his anger with him to the grave. Can you imagine dying six feet from God and remaining six feet apart from God forever? But the other criminal, verse 40, rebuked him he said don't you fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did but this man this man's done nothing wrong then in verse 42 we have his moment of salvation he said to Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus said to him I assure you today you will be with me in paradise Picture the scene, three crosses, 12 feet, two thieves, Jesus in the center, two thieves with the Son of God in the middle. Both men were sinners, both men were angry. One chose to take his anger to the grave, the other found forgiveness. No one was going to remember this man. He was worthless to all, but he was not worthless to God. He didn't have anything to give God. He couldn't say, Hey God, from this moment forward, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to give you every part of my life. I'll I'll give it all to you. He had nothing to give God. Stripped of everything, he was dying. Nothing with which to negotiate. All he could do is open the clenched fist and request forgiveness. And Jesus extended to him grace. He says, I'll remember you. Because you believed you're going to be with me for all eternity. He died six feet from God, but he would remain with God forever. Barabbas, Simon, the thief on the cross, all three of these men encountered Jesus in the moment of His suffering. And just like each of us, all three of these men were in need of a Savior. And just like each of us, God loved All three of these men. See, this is the whole point of the cross. That God, driven by His love for you, sent His Son to live a life that you could never live, to die on the cross for your sins, so that when we believe in Him, we might not perish, but our lives might have eternal life and eternal significance. Through the midst of Jesus' suffering, God was bringing their freedom. I don't know the complete story of your life. But I do know this, God loves you. If you're not a believer, He wants to save you. And I also know this, that He wants to take those individual events in your life, sometimes happy, sometimes painful, and He wants to bring those events together to display His glory and to tell His story. And it's not a story of how good you are. It's a story of how great He is. It's a story of grace. And so right now, know this. God's at work in your life. And there's people around you that need you to be the hands and feet of Christ. One final question and I'll stop. Who's your one? Who's the one right now that God has brought into your life you can reach out to who's that one person in your life right now that you can invite to Easter that one person in your life right now that you could share the gospel with that one person in your life that you can help just be an example of what Christianity is to them whenever we begin joining God in his work we begin discovering that God is a good gracious God And He can use your life in ways that you never saw coming. And He can put together a picture that you never imagined. And God's story is so much better than anything that we write. I really pray that you experience His best. Because it's good, it's perfect, it's satisfying to be a part of what God is doing. Would you guys be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we bow our heads? The musicians are going to come and lead us in singing. I'll be here at the front. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, it's always my joy to do so. My wife is here with me as well if she can pray with you with anything. If today needs to be the day that you become a believer in Christ, we would love to talk to you about that as well. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church and I thank you for how you are writing the stories of our lives and You're bringing together these various events in ways that only You can to display Your glory in ways that You have desired to display them. And Father, we know that before the foundations of the earth that You desired that each of our lives might be conformed to the image of Your Son. And so, Father, I pray, wherever we are, that You might use us, whatever we're doing, that You may give us eyes to see, And that you might give us the great, great joy of being a part of what you're doing in people around us, in our community, and around the world. And when you're at work, Lord, help us not to miss it because we're so focused on ourselves. May we cast our eyes upon you, gaze at our God, glance at our problems. It's in Jesus' name we pray, in Jesus' name we worship. Amen.